You're listening to Audio Interference, produced by Interference Archive. In this episode, we're speaking with activists who participated in protests against the World Trade Organization in the 1990s and 2000s. We'll focus on the protests that took place in Seattle, and then we'll share an interview with someone who participated in WTO protests in Cancun, one of the protests that took place globally as a result. The World Trade Organization was scheduled to hold a ministerial conference in Seattle, Washington on November 30, 1999, to sign a new trade deal, which was seen as ruthlessly undemocratic and a harm to the environment, as well as to workers and people's rights across the globe. About 40,000 activists, environmentalists, students, professionals, and other concerned workers and citizens took to the streets to express their dissent. There are hundreds of people surrounding here demanding the release of the 500 people who were illegally arrested last night for non-violently demonstrating against the WTO. Today we're showing up for prisoner support. Well, they got about 11 squad cars that they pulled up the street and tried to intimidate the crowd into backing off just by pulling the cruiser in over the top of them. Fortunately, the peaceful protesters stayed peaceful, didn't do violent things to the car, and the police backed off when they found that the crowd wouldn't give up. But what they're going to do now is tear gas us because we didn't give up. They successfully blocked delegates from entering the convention center, delaying the meeting. The protest became known as the Battle of Seattle because of the police violence that ensued in response to the protesters. A curfew was even put in place on the day of the protest, which you will hear more about later on in this episode. The reason that Seattle stands out to me in some ways for the fact that we actually blocked a lot of delegates from getting in and therefore it affected the talks a lot was that we had the element of surprise. And it's hard to do that again because then the state and the police forces just like got really savvy at spying and interrupting all activism after that. So that's why I was thinking that in some ways it stands out as like something you might memorialize, but that partly was because we just were able to pull something off that became so much harder afterwards. That's Becca Shaw Glazer, activist, organizer, and co-editor of the activist manual, Mindful Occupation, Rising Up Without Burning Out. Becca first heard about the Seattle protests when she was in Urbana, Illinois, visiting the School for Designing a Society. I hadn't heard of the WTO, but I think that so many people hadn't at that point because it was that sort of partly how it worked was by being so hidden and a secret non-governmental organization that had the power to just override countries' own environmental or labor laws. Right before we left Urbana, this... um, Monty Brune, who was, I think she was in her 80s, and she was a veteran of peace activism and women's activism, gave us this really short workshop about how to protect yourself from tear gas. And I was, I was really naive, and I really just thought, oh, there's no way that the U.S. government's going to use tear gas in broad daylight, particularly on what was largely a white and more middle class mobilization and then come to find out in Seattle it was just like huge tear gas fest so 
it was really, I don't know, prescient of her to give us that instruction. Becca describes the day of the protest when she arrived in Seattle and the violent response from the police. It was just so exciting because there were all these activists from all over the place, some who'd been doing it for a long time, a lot of people who were more new to it. And that's where all these trainings were happening and things like puppets being made. I remember walking home from that and feeling this sense of hope in the air. And everywhere I looked, there were flyers against the WTO or like pro-peace or pro-environment. And it was just really exciting. And it felt like things really actually could change. The following morning, starting at 5 a.m., at every intersection around the convention center where the WTO delegates were converging, folks sat, wearing diapers, locked arm-in-arm to each other into the sidewalk so that the police wouldn't be able to separate them. The people who were locked in, there were other people there to care for them and give them water and food, making sure traffic didn't run over them. And then all around them, there were more people standing up, kind of being a human chain. We'd chant things like, no one in, no one out. That's what a line is all about. Already that morning at 8.30 a.m., like walking to get to that the protests, um, I saw the police ram this chain link fence onto a guy, knocking him down. So the police were just already really violent that early on. And then later that day, it said around four, we were in this Reclaim the Streets dance party in the middle of Pike Place. I got up on top of a bus stop, and this was partly because I was looking around, it was like mostly men, and I was annoyed that men often take up this space. Someone suddenly was running around yelling, the mayor declared martial law, and I didn't believe it, like this idea that there was a curfew. Becca is referring to the curfew that was put in place late in the day on Tuesday, November 30th, 1999. Just suddenly, stormtroopers were barging down the street. I don't know how many. It felt like hundreds. They had these big helmets, and they were banging their batons in unison against the road as they walked, just so menacing and they were firing uh, lots and lots of tear gas and these flash bombs this was the first time where people started to run and like what you've always heard is don't run because people get trampled it really was my first time really seeing the brutality of the state and although I had been a critic of the government for a long time I hadn't seen it in that extreme a level. And then there was just the personal trauma. I think it took years to stop hearing certain sounds and being triggered back to memories. I think it also helped people uh, create a kind of solidarity because like I know with some of the the protesters, of the anti-corporate globalization protesters that were arrested, they were like put in the jail they start seeing what's happening towards what's mostly poor people and people of color who are in jail and prisons. And so there started to be some more solidarity around that too and understanding that has continued to some degree. When Danielle Shinoweth first heard about the WTO protests, she was teaching at the School for Designing a Society. Danielle, a longtime local community organizer and activist, 
currently serves as a public official in Urbana. She is also currently working on a book titled Designing Desirable Societies with Brooklyn-based composer and organizer Elizabeth Adams. During our conversation, Danielle shared entries from the journal she kept during the protests. Danielle and her group organized during the months of September, October, and November. On November 26, 1999, they flew from Urbana, Illinois to Seattle. Danielle talks about the goals of the protests, her strategy, and the response. And that street protest really was had the objective of disrupting the World Trade Organization meetings. That meeting was specifically to set the agenda for a series of talks that were going to happen. And our goal was to keep the delegates from getting inside the convention center and having that conversation and to disrupt the conversation. And I remember saying to the delegate, the police are beating people so that you can get into this meeting. And if you turn around and go back, they will stop beating people. You are causing this problem and you can solve it. You need to go back. And I remember this delegate watching the police hit this guy, you know, and smack him in his face and start really brutalizing him and freak out. And the delegate turned back. And this was the same police who had peacefully escorted us the day before. Same police. Um, But so we were trying to figure out what happened. Mm -hmm. And what happened was that Bill Clinton came to town. The whole place was put in lockdown and curfew. And whether it was before he came or after, he had made a call to the chief of police. And he was like, you must make sure that this meeting is safe and that people and people conduct business. The other thing the police did is they confiscated all of our signs. And so I learned the mess. I learned the lesson that if you have a sign, it can be confiscated. And if it's confiscated, a group of people without signs all of a sudden becomes what appears to be a mob. So the the message is lost in any kind of media coverage. So the media, which was not paying any attention, and then all of a sudden started to pay a little bit of attention because they heard that we were really actually able to stop this meeting from happening. They show up right around the time that the police are taking all of our messages away. The message was lost in mainstream media coverage, but the indie media movement gave protesters a voice. The indie media movement had really started with the Zapatistas who understood the strategy of using the internet to have an international audience um, for a very local struggle. And so um, borrowing from the Zapatistas, uh, there were a group of organizers who started an independent media center in Seattle, which was really the first IMC in the country. That IMC was, you know, a small kind of little shop, almost looked like a print shop or something, uh, where folks who were recording what was happening on the street were kind of flying in and dropping off their recordings, and it was being uploaded to an open publishing system. And what Indie Media had done has re- is realized that there was this opportunity for us um, to diversify the voices of the media and to have the people on the streets tell their stories directly. The Indie Media Center in Seattle was an inspiration, and shortly after they returned from Seattle, a group gathered in Danielle's living room to plan the creation of an IMC in Urbana. The Urbana Indie Media Center continues to serve the community today. Turning back to the streets of Seattle, Danielle recounts the moment they learned the WTO talks ended. See, the way the WTO works is that it also worked by consensus. So while we're doing our consensus in the street, the WTO, in theory, 
the delegates are supposed to come to consensus about the agenda. Well, the African delegation uh, had refused to agree to the agenda. World Trade Organization talks um, fell apart at that point. And I remember being outside the jail, waiting you know, for our friends to come out, and we're implementing these things, and everyone started shouting, Africa, Africa. And then it was announced that you know the talks had fallen apart, and Africa had chosen not to participate. Um, in, in moving forward. And that was a really glorious time. And then it was shortly thereafter that uh, our friends came out. That's right. After seven days and nights of demonstrations by tens of thousands of protesters, a rebellion by developing nations, and a deadlock among the world's largest trading powers, uh, the round of trade negotiations at the World Trade Organization uh, in Seattle collapsed, ending without consensus on many uh, on any of the main issues. The delegates were unable to agree on issues such as farm subsidies, which the U.S. wants eliminated, as well as the use of bioengineering and a moratorium on tariffs on electronic commerce, among many other trade issues. Delegates from developing countries also publicly complained that the more economically powerful nations excluded them from important rounds of talks. Mark Enslin was also an instructor at the School for Designing a Society in Urbana, Illinois. He traveled to Seattle with his students, who had created new projects specifically for the WTO protests. There, he witnessed both police repression of the protests and the creative ways activists found resistance. Hillary Clinton was uh, scheduled to come in for the meeting, and I remember some really early hour of the morning being out there where there was a lockdown of her hotel where she was staying at, and um, a negotiation by consensus with uh, people who were part of that, that lockdown with a police officer. So that was interesting to see that under certain circumstances, police were trying to gauge uh, whether it was easier for them if they negotiated versus if they were violent. But I also saw, I was in the presence of tear gas for one, uh, one day. I saw a person who had been hit by a non-lethal projectile and they were bleeding in their face. In the organized lockdowns and, and blockades that I was part of, it was ethnically pretty monoculture. And I remember one black participant in one of the early street occupations saying, the reason you're not seeing more black people here is because we know we're going to be targeted first. And then I would see in the news that in the evening, the police would go up the hill to African-American area of Seattle and have this separate kind of riot with them. So there were, there were a lot of dynamics going on in terms of police violence and who was involved and who was actually doing what. Oh, what else? Oh, outside the jail, we had 24 hours drumming, trying to get a message of noise to them inside. And they told us afterwards that they heard it and it gave them a lot of hope and heard tales of one group of people who were arrested and kept on a bus for 12 hours in prison in the bus. They uh, started to rock the bus back and forth. And when it seemed like they were going to be able to knock the bus over, they got some negotiation. Oh, another thing that I saw early on, I think that was the first day, I happened to see, I think I even spoke a little bit with a guy who um, had a crowbar in his pocket. But, hmm, crowbar, interesting. And then a little bit further on, I saw a jewelry store with a window smashed. And thought, that is fascinating. 
one thinks of these protected parts of our society that are protected with such violence, like say a jewelry store, one thinks of them as invulnerable. And then someone comes along with a simple crowbar and says, smash, we don't accept the premises on which this structure is being built on. Mark and his students were also inspired by the independent media center that formed to document the protests and share news. The first day, there was a catalog that someone produced of various events around. There was educational events in uh, local colleges and other places. There was uh, a workshop on independent media, which we were learning about for the first time, out of video protests since the we couldn't rely on the mass media to report accurately what the protest was going to be. And so someone said, get a camera and um, do filming yourself. And if you get arrested, you can drop your camera in a pre-addressed envelope and throw it in a mailbox and they'll save your, uh, your footage. There was um, a, uh, an independent media storefront that the people who prepared it had, had gotten beforehand. And so they had internet connections. And I think there were people coming to the mass meetings with printouts from these, these internet reports or maybe other kinds of news. It was not yet cell phone time. And so the, the documenting that was happening was with video cameras that people brought. And there was, of course, a lot of press there as well, mainstream press too. Conflicts that Mark observed among protesters in Seattle in 1999 continued to be felt in organizing today. There was an interesting kind of tensions among the people who took part in this. And um, so when I hear someone use the phrase diversity of tactics, that my experience in Seattle comes to mind because there were a lot of people who did not agree on tactics. I myself had a lot of sympathy for say black block. There were other people who thought we should be sweeping the streets where there's broken glass in order to kind of present a good face. And that kind of dichotomy continues in other kinds of activism I'm part of today. So I don't know if that's really comes out of the Seattle experience, but to me, it's, it was really crystallized in my time there. What stood out to us from our conversations is the thoughtful way people organized and were able to share skills and information leading up to the protests. The protests brought together activists working in different fields, including labor organizers, environmentalists, and indigenous sovereignty groups. And the protests fostered a strong sense of global connectedness. An international activist network developed who continued to protest at subsequent WTO meetings. And numerous other protests against the World Trade Organization were organized following Seattle. To close this episode, we're going to focus on another WTO protest, which took place in Cancun, Mexico, September of 2003. We spoke with Celeste, a woman from Wisconsin with indigenous roots in Mexico. How I got involved in the WTO protest really goes back to January 1st, 1994, when NAFTA was enacted and there was an indigenous 
uprising, uh, the Zapatistan uprising. The Comandante Marcos declared NAFTA as a death sentence for indigenous people, and the WTO basically extended that death sentence to <laughs> indigenous people around the world. So being um, aware of that struggle connected me to the issues that were coming up at these WTO meetings and what we were protesting was the increasing amount of corporate power and value of markets over democracy and both right to land and to grow their own food and basically provide for themselves and their own people rather than being washed in this cheap, you know, products that were being produced just to get money, you know, without any cultural values attached to it. We asked about leadership during the protests, and she thought what made the protest effective was its decentralized nature. There was a lot of spontaneous action and many levels of participation, which made it difficult for authorities to target people. Many of these spontaneous actions were connected to music and theater. Music and theater were important tools in protests. They are an important thread that connected an international, multi-generational group of people. The Korean Farmers Federation and their music, the National Indigenous Congress of Mexico's marching band, and the theater and artwork of the Beehive Collective are just a few groups mentioned. One of the groups that was there doing theater was the Beehive Collective doing a really beautiful theater piece about how monarchs and monarch migration was being affected by GMO crops and the delicacy and importance of indigenous heirloom corn and the interconnectedness of these beings. I also came here with the Beehive Design Collective and we believe that it's really important to not just use words and books that get locked away but to use images that can be out for people to use and use um, uh, anti-copyright um, free- freeness for the images to be used for organizing tools and to give people hope and to give people also ways to, to look at the issues that are before us constantly and to see how to talk about them together instead of just um, only be able to read about them but have other ways such as popular education using theater and images to to break down and bring people together to Lee, Lee Kim Hai who is a part of the Korean Peasant League was there and Lee took his life there holding a sign that says the WTO kills farmers he was a really successful rice farmer in a part of Korea that is really hard to grow rice. And he was also not just a farmer, but a sustainable agriculture teacher. And so a lot of people really looked up to him and his family and the sustainable practices that they were using to grow rice. And one free trade started affecting the land there and flooding it with cash crops of rice. People could buy rice for really cheap and it caused him to lose his livelihood. It's a really powerful statement and not the only farmer that has committed suicide because of um, 
how WTO, NAFTA, and these free trade agreements have affected farmers' lives. Lee Kyung-hai's death caused the Korean and Kenyan delegates to walk out of the WTO meetings, which terminated the meetings early. Both delegates were already part of a group called the Group of 22, made up of representatives from 22 countries representing 80% of the world's farmers. Here, she talks about the events following Lee's death, how the protesters processed the farmers' death and the contradictions felt in celebrating a success interrupting the WTO meetings amidst mourning for somebody who has been lost. The memorial for Lee was so powerful because we sort of decided collectively that all of the women would go up to the front line and cut the fence down, separating us from the meeting. The Koreans had brought these really big ropes, and we were weaving them into even stronger ropes, which is also this really beautiful symbolic gesture of all of the threads that we were weaving together in solidarity there. We wove these ropes together and collectively, led by the Koreans, just pulled down like huge, huge sections of the fence. And so at this point, the cops in riot gear on the other side of the fence were getting nervous and expecting violence or something. We turn our backs to them and start having ceremony where we laid flowers down and tied prayer flags on the fence. It was kind of a mixture of celebration and mourning for this person's life, thinking about how our own lives can can honor this, this person and all of the farmers that he represented. Proud of all the women that are here um, cutting down the fence and getting ready to enter and how brave people are and how beautiful all these people are here that um, they really are, up, are willing to put themselves in front on the front line for what they really stand for and what they came to Cancun for and to see people speaking all different languages and still communicating and still organizing is, gives me a lot of hope. It's been nearly 20 years since these protests in Seattle, Cancun, and other cities internationally. People around the world are still implicated in and negatively affected by these undemocratic, globalized systems that activists were fighting during the WTO protests. Our work is not done, and activists continue to fight for our environment and for workers' and people's rights. Huge thank you to Danielle, Mark, Becca, and Celeste for speaking with us for this episode. Visit our show notes for articles and other materials about protests against the World Trade Organization discussed in this episode. You can also visit the archive to see zines and other print materials about the WTO protests. You've been listening to Audio Interference, produced by Interference Archive. The archive is collectively run and volunteer-powered. If you like what you heard today, consider making a donation to help keep the archive up and running. Just go to interferencearchive.org and click on Donate. From all of us at Audio Interference, thanks for listening.